Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Austin Wintery from Abzu. Because over the weekend, Sam and I went to the third annual Gamers Rhapsody, which is a game convention focused on music here in the Twin Cities. In this episode, you'll hear one of three panels we hosted, this one featuring a live Skype call with Austin Wintry. To learn more about the convention and how we participated, you can check out the article at patreon.com slash level. The audio during the Q&A wasn't really the best at first, so I'll slip in a couple different times just to let you know what the questions are. Austin Wintry, I'm sure people are familiar with Austin through either maybe Journey or uh, more recently Abzu and Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which, I mean, my God, you did such an amazing job on all of those things. Um, and I'm just really glad that you're doing this so we can uh, kind of have you here without having you here. It's it's uh, nice to chat with you and hear what's new. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm not there in person. You know, they offered that I would come out and, and, you know, be presumably sitting there right next to you. Um, and it didn't quite work with the schedule. So this was a good compromise. So anyway, thank you very much for having me. And always happy to do whatever you're up to. So And, you know, you and I have, have yet to talk about Abzu. And so I'm really excited to kind of dig into that a little bit. Has anybody here played it? A couple of people have played it. Um, and... And I haven't even played it yet. I've seen it, and it's beautiful. So tell me a little bit about that game. Describe the game and kind of kind of where you went with it with me, your music. Well, so the game was the, the creative director is a guy, Matt Nava, who was the art director on Flower and Journey. And so after Journey came out, he left that company and started his own studio called Giant Squid and called me pretty much immediately and said, uh, you know, we're looking to, to get rolling on a new game and I'd love to tell you about it and sort of see, see what you think. He, you know, showed me concept art and, and, uh, things he had started cooking up and, and it was pretty much exactly the game as you see it. I mean, he, he had a pretty clear vision of the visual style and just basically it was, it was a lot like journey. He said, why don't we come up with a theme and kind of rally around that, and then uh, and then just build this as it goes. So I wrote uh, I wrote a theme, and actually, unlike Journey, I sat on it for a while because I wasn't act- I wasn't one hundred percent convinced that it was right. Um, and so I told Matt, I have a theme. I'm not going to play it for you yet. And after like a month, I finally came to the conclusion. You know, I just think this might be it. And so uh, I played it for him, and he was like you know, done. And then much like Journey, it was just kind of off we went. It was similarly damn near three years of building up the score in parallel with the game and throwing huge amounts of material out. There's certain areas of the game where there's, for every minute that's in the music, there's probably 20 to 30 minutes worth that I ditched. Um, so, I mean, just huge volumes that I sketched and worked out and then was like, ah, I hate this. And so, it was in that sense, it was considerably more difficult than Journey, just because I was constantly hating myself. But then, yeah, then, you know, it, we, we went about the normal production process, recorded it, had all kinds of weird stuff, like harp ensemble and a really nice choir, and 
and uh, we can get into more about that if you like. But but just, yeah, that's that's kind of the long and short of it in a medium length. <laughs> One of the things that I like about your scores is that each time you manage to kind of like find interesting musicians, you record with interesting ensembles. Uh, you seem to always kind of be like searching for uh, just good good players and, and good groups of musicians. So talk a little bit about that process for you, not just on Abzu, but on, you know, just for you creatively working with musicians. Right. Well, it's like casting an actor for a filmmaker. You know, you very often they'll write a script with a specific actor in mind. And then if they're lucky enough to get the actor, they are the smartest filmmakers tend to have a certain latitude in what they're doing to allow space for that actor to then bring their own voice to it. And sometimes that is like improvising whole scenes, and sometimes that's just adding subtext that is of their own design and not necessarily prescriptively in the uh, script. And so for me, it's a very similar process. I think about kind of, I, I try to let the game or the film or whatever, let it organically kind of talk to me somehow. Um, and then I figure out, okay, well, what can I do that I feel like I've never tried before that this thing is asking me to do? And I don't mean that in any kind of literal hearing voices sense, I hope, uh, although I suppose I would be the least qualified to say so, uh, to get a third party objective analysis. But, uh, in any case, the thinking is to, uh, find something that feels organically fit. And then of course... The, the, side of, the side of it is, are there specific musicians that just do something that I can't live without, that I have to have as part of this? And like on Assassin's Creed Syndicate, for example, there were three principal soloists. There's soprano solos when you're kind of exploring and on the rooftops that were very specifically written for my, my friend Holly Cedillos. But then at the core of the game, centered around this dynamic between the two siblings of Jacob and Evie, is this violin and cello solos written for Sandy Cameron and Tina Guo, very much built around what they do. And so the equivalent to that on Absu was um, our kind of friend in the community and, and delightful gaming uh, sort of nerd and cover artist, Kristen Nagus, who's an oboe player based in Florida. Um, and I reached out to her, like, literally three years ago when very first starting the project and she had never really played on the game or anything at that point. And I met her because she had YouTube, she put covers on YouTube of like journey arranged for English horn, but also uh, she had done like Monaco and this other game that I did that like nobody knows about called horn um, and beautiful cover. And so I was like, you know, who are you that's doing all these phenomenally well executed covers? I mean, she just, she stays with personality, you know, and, and then we hit it off. So I was like, oboe is definitely going to end up being like what cello was on Journey or, you know, violin and cello in tandem or on Assassin's Creed. Um, and then to a lesser extent, the London Voices Choir, who did all the choral performances, and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, and they've also done like every other choir ever. I knew I needed an, a, a very particular and special choir for the score because it's not easy. A lot of people have raised their eyebrows at the fact that Eric Whitaker has a special thanks on the album... Um, and have wondered why that is. And it's actually because Eric is a friend of mine and we were going to, he, it was going to be his choir and he was going to conduct the choir personally on the game. 
Um, and then in the 11th hour, due to a schedule shift on both our parts, uh, that ended up not being possible. But he came over and played the game during development, and um, and uh, we talked about it. And and uh, uh, you know, he 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 encouraged me to to not hold back with the choral writing uh, uh, on the promise that his his group, the Eric Whitaker Singers in London, could really could really. Uh, chew through it and then uh when it didn't work out i was like oh shit i like i've already backed myself to a corner of some pretty substantially difficult core writing and then i was like well so i called jess curry and i said i said the final product wasn't hell to get to right like that was as effortless as it sounds and she said oh yeah london voices and of course sony reiterated the same and eric reiterated the same you know he knew them as well so i said all right then I will proceed for, and of course they totally slaughtered it. So anyway, yes, that's a very again once again a long-winded answer way of saying that uh, writing very much for the musicians is always a big part of it. You know, I mean, I, flow to date remains the only 100% electronic score that I've done that that really not this is not applicable to, and I would love to go back and you know do that again at some point. But but I have such a love affair with writing for specific people and and like wanting to let them be the soul of the project you know so anyway uh it's uh it's it's an ongoing uh it's an ongoing uh exploration in fact there's a there's a game that i have that i i can't get into at the moment but which i've been working on uh and like nearing the end of because i've been recording in london and, and recording um elsewhere uh, it's a very interestingly scatterbrained score because it draws from a million different things. But there's a soloist that I have on this one that has never done a game. She's never done a film. She, I like found her on YouTube as a as a classical artist, and she is a phenomenon. And uh, I just I'm so excited to kind of like introduce the world of games to her and and. Uh, and I've loved introducing I'm sorry, introducing her to the world of games. I've already enjoyed thoroughly introducing games to her. Um, uh, it's really funny. She's not she's not much of a gamer. Um, but when we had our first Skype to kind of talk and see how things would go, uh, uh, she um, she goes. I went and looked up uh, your body of work and the, there's only one game that I've played that you worked on and I'm like so accustomed to the answer to that being Journey because it's so and she goes uh, I didn't realize you worked on Counter-Strike and I was like that's the one game you've played my god uh, I was so caught off guard by that um, and uh, anyway so sorry to be a little uh, vague about that but I'm just so stoked to uh to you know when when the time comes to unveil properly uh she's she's just she's a force in it i mean she is she is to her instrument absolutely what tina or sandy are to theirs like you'd be hard pressed to name uh many if any people that are that are truly objectively better at it in the world. Uh, you said something earlier about how you threw out so much music for Abzu, and I'm curious how, I mean, that's 
that's some dedication. And I know that's one of the things that sets you apart and why you're so good at what you do. But talk to me a little bit about that process about, you know, writing something and creating something and then realizing it's no good and just doing, doing it from scratch again. Um, well, you know, it's one of those things that, that I, um, I'll sketch for a few hours and, and kind of come up with something that seems like it's sort of working. And sometimes I'll then just sit on it and then I'll go and like get in my car and drive around or just walk around the neighborhood here around my studio. There's some like houses and things that my studio, uh, kind of backs against. And so I'll just go wandering through these neighborhoods and, and, um, and there's all, just a bunch of different processes that I use. Sometimes I'll just quickly bounce out what I've been doing and email it to myself as like an MP3 and then just listen to it as I walk around. And then like the change of context will give me the ability to hear all the things that are wrong with it. And sometimes that list grows so gigantic that I'm like, okay, this can't be helped. This like There's some little DNA here that is intriguing to me, but I can't. I can't save it. Like it just, I just have to bail on it because there's too much that is systemically wrong, like on a genetic level. And, uh, but then other times I'll do the, I'll do kind of the flip of that and I won't send it to myself and I'll go wander around and just kind of see if I retain it. Uh, and if I walk away and I immediately forget it, having just literally myself written it, then I think, well, okay, it's probably superficial and it's probably, not saying something, you know, I'm a believer in this concept that I'm stealing from the composer Chris Rouse, um, classical Pulitzer Prize winning composer who teaches at Juilliard, who I, I never studied with. Actually, a friend of mine studied with him and just told me once something that he had said while studying with him that I that I never forgot, which was the idea that in every in all your writing there has to be this urgency of expression, which means that it's music that is like demanding of you that it must exist. And doesn't matter if it's music, you know, on commission, meaning in a game or in a film or something like that. It still has to justify its existence. You can't just simply say, "Well, because I got a gig, I have to deliver on a gig." Like to me, I, I, I don't care how many all-nighters I have to pull. If if the writing doesn't actually need to exist, I don't care who's paying for it. There, there, there is some version somewhere that probably does, in that sense, need to exist, uh, or at least to me, it feels like okay, this. I don't hate this. Uh, I, I may be I may be neutral to it, but um, but I end up, but I overwhelmingly hate everything that I put down. And so, if something can escape that even just into the realm of neutrality, then we're in good shape. Um, and so, and then the other part of it is super iterative. Like um, there's this. Um, um, can you hear this? Is my piano coming through? Is that clear? It's not super garbled. So like there's this moment, um, there's like this fish highway sequence that is kind of like the analog in Abzu to the Road of Trials from Journey, where after a kind of meditative first act, we have a big surge in energy. And uh, there's this little motif that comes back through that, um, that's like this, uh, it goes, uh, let's see. That I, I did 10 million iterations of that. Um, and it would be one of those things where I'd change, I'd change one note. Like, you know, going down, um, uh, like, uh, you know, like, uh, my, 
you know, I do ten versions, and then I realize, oh, the last two notes are backwards. Like, you know, uh, I'm sorry. That would be like version one, and I'd, I'd, I'd like. Well, that's boring. Why am I just continuously going down like that? You know? So I'd sit there and rework. And once there's that like six note thing, then I spin ten minutes of material out of it. And then, but then what happens is, I'll do that prematurely and realize that the little nugget that I was building from, I actually don't like. Um, and so then, ten minutes of music is all just fatally crippled because it's built off of a thing that I'm not. I'm not not feeling anymore so there was and because i had the luxury of time on this game to such an extreme um this process you know happened a lot and the other thing also is journey is obsessively monothematic right like everything in the game is and everything is i mean even you know from the road of trials is the journey theme just in this very ornate way right and so um Everything in the game stems back to that, and I was like, on Abzu, I want to. I, I thought, um, I want to approach this in a much more sort of Stravinsky ballet way, where there, with the caveat being that unlike the Rite of Spring or the Firebird or whatever, there actually is an overarching main theme. You know, the the very simple, you know. playing at such a weird angle um uh there is an overarching main theme but i use it actually very sparingly at key junctures within the the narrative and that otherwise each kind of isolated pocket of the story has its own thematic material that i develop and then once you're through there you never will hear it again and which is which is you know like you listen to the rite of spring and it's 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 non-developmental and so far as like when you know it starts You never hear that again once he's done with it, right? It's not the theme to the Rite of Spring. It's just the intro. And I and I was like, I am always so obsessed with this kind of Bach or, or Jerry Goldsmith sense of economy where it's like, I want to come up with that perfect thing that I can then spend two hours of material out of. That on Abzu, I conscientiously said, I want to not do that just to see what happens if I don't. So like the whole first you know quarter of the game, there's this little motif that goes... Uh, and all of that i spent forever developing that knowing that only about the first 20 minutes of the game would use that and then as soon as we left that area we'd never hear again um and i'd never actually done a game i'd never done something quite like this uh before just as a, as just to see what would, where it would where it would take me you know um, so, like, there's this whole finale. I wrote probably 45 minutes just to figure out what in compression is 10 minutes. The whole finale, which is just this simple little tune that's, you know. Uh, the whole thing at the end, um, same thing, just like. Days and days and days and weeks of hashing out well over an hour of sketches before finally nailing specifically that, and then 
and then you know figuring out okay now that I have like thing I think that I that I am uh, you know okay with now how the hell do I actually score with that so anyway there's a very long winded uh, insight but I got the piano here and I couldn't resist. No, I'm I'm glad you did that. Uh, we're going to go to questions super soon, just because I know uh, that there never seems to be enough time for that. Um, but I do want to know: uh, Do you ever find any amount of irony in the fact that for these indie games, you get you tend to not always, but you you get more you get this luxury of time, as you said. You know, you you had that with Journey, you get that with Abzu, you. And then, you know, you do a, a game like Syndicate and they're like, okay, we need this in two days or something like that. Uh, but it's uh, such a bigger game. Syndicate was, was almost a year. Uh, and even though it was considerably more music, three and a half hours versus, you know, an hour, give or take, um, uh, which, you know, I mean, because I do films as well and films just never. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of films here or there that were that I had that kind of time, but that's very abnormal and 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 that was not originally planned on the case like those films were you know we have to be done by this date and then something would change and then it turns out we have a little more time. It was never from the beginning known that we were gonna have a year. but in general, you know you turn around a film in in a month to to three months give it I mean like I'm actually starting on a on a movie right now that I haven't extremely atypical amount of time because um, I I don't technically my date for delivery to the dub stage on that is not till this summer uh, or next summer I mean like you know J June I think um, and so in on the face of it it's like wow I have six months to score this film but the reality is like they just started shooting the film in Europe five days ago. So it's, it's not like, so, so my work at this point is just feeding sketches to the director purely to think about knowing that, you know, we may ditch all this because once the footage is there, it can change everything about what you think is right. But this is one of my closest collaborators. He's one of the, he's the first person I met when I moved to LA. We've done several films and a million other things together. And, and, um, and one of the most well-known films that I've done is this film called Grace, and that was him. And uh, th that was what gave me my weird taste for the absurd because we recorded the score consists primarily of the sound of babies crying, horse flies at a ranch, and eight contrabass clarinets at Abbey Road. Um, and that was, uh, that was 2008, um, you know, long before uh, the only thing that I would have done that, you know, this crowd would be familiar with at that point was Flow. Uh, Journey, they were Flower was still under active development at that point, and so that was definitely an early project for me. Sundance, Sundance uh, film, and blah blah blah. Anyway, so, um, so you know that's that is atypical. But he is the kind of director who wants to hear stuff on set, and and I've read this script. He's he's rewritten this script several times over the last several years, and we've discussed music over that span for it and a lot of other projects. But this one just happened to go because, you know, they got they got a. They got a good cast that came together, and and so he's he's shooting right now, um, uh, and I'm hoping to go visit the set. I've visited the set of all of his prior films, and I would hate to break that tradition, but they're in Bulgaria, so it's a freaking pain in the ass to even – never mind that it's so expensive, but also just like 
it's hard to just pop in and out. <laughs> but anyway, that's all a, bit, a big tangent. So, so yes, uh, I, you're right. I am very fortunate. Banner Saga Games also had had a lot of time um, to to work on them, and and Monaco, and you know, Tooth and Tail. This I ha- I'm working on this. The guy that made Monaco, we're doing a new game right now called Tooth and Tail, and I have the concept art for it on my wall uh, above my screen here. Um, I don't know if that was visible. I had to. Uh, yeah, you see, it's like it's a strategy game, uh, World War One era technology, but all the characters are animals like Redwall or Secret of Nim, um, and uh, it's just so much fun. And the score is totally ridiculous. Um, and I brought my my tripod boys uh, back into it from uh, from Assassin's Creed and other things. Uh, so anyway, that's. Um, that's another one that I'm in two and a half years or something into that game or something like that already. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is a fascinating norm. I feel very lucky about it. Well, let's, who's got questions for Austin? Any questions? Benji. All right. In the first question, the asker noticed a significant change in the music during Assassin's Creed Syndicate. He told Austin he heard a lot more brass after a certain event in the story and wondered if that was deliberate. Did you hear any of that, Austin? I, I actually think, tell me if this is a fair restatement. In progressing through the game, you notice the kind of evolution of the colors and specifically the stepping forward of the prominence of brass by the time you reach the end and want to know kind of about the thinking there. Is that a fair restatement? Cool. It was surprisingly easy to hear. Um, the, um, uh, so that I'm thrilled that that was noticeable because that was extremely intentional. Um, and you know, the challenge Assassin's Creed, uh, or syndicate rather was, was the first, Despite the fact that a lot of people feel like when they're playing Journey, for example, that they're playing an open world game, if you know anything about game mechanics, you know Journey is actually immensely linear. Um, and um, and it's meant to feel like beyond the curtain is a big, wide, expansive world that you could, you know, in some alternate version of the game, go explore. But it's not actually an open world game. By contrast, Syndicate is very much an open world game. I mean, you, once you get to London, which is rather immediate in the story, there's nowhere that you can't go in the whole city straight out of the gate. You can have the weakest, most, most, uh, unequipped characters, um, that have, you know, that have not leveled up or anything and go to places where you're very likely to get completely slaughtered because the, the, the city is sort of tiered such that if you follow the progression of the narrative, you'll explore it, commiserate with its difficulty but you don't have to technically you can't i mean you have to do the 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 narrative missions in order but you don't you can go anywhere so i mean it is properly open world and i uh felt that uh the open worldness poses a massive narrative challenge because you are still telling a story and also because of the open world quality um, the the players uh, are creating their own kind of personal narrative in a way that's even far more than than other more prescriptive games like Journey or Abzu or whatever. Um, and so one of the first things I said to Ubisoft when they hired me was, I said, look, I love you guys and I really love this franchise, 
but I feel like every prior AC I play totally fucked this up. Um, because basically there would be recurring motifs or elements or even themes that were completely agnostic to the narrative. And I said, the problem is nothing is agnostic to the narrative because everything happens relative to where we are in the story. So like, even if I play through two thirds of the story, having never done a single side mission, and then I go and do 20 side missions and then go back to the narrative 15 hours later, and I've like done a very bulbous approach to it. Um, I've still I've still gone through a narrative experience of a certain kind of construction, and I said we we can't, we can't let ourselves off the hook for being good storytellers, despite the fact that we have no idea what the player is going to do. So we need to build a proper toolkit with the score, um, and. Uh, and in fact, originally they were skept They were like, you know, how much music do we really need in the game? And they were advocating for a lot less. And I said, or not a lot less, but a certain amount less. And I said, guys, you know, there's, there's no way to solve this problem without just throwing a certain amount of music at the game. Um, uh, and the big, the big thing that I had was, and this is the big, this is the simplest way to kind of attack this question because the, the combat just street combat with a random thug or like a random cop or whoever on the street it's something that can happen at any point in the game and happens a million times and i said the thing is if i get into a little fight on the street 15 minutes into the game or 12 hours from now having very rigorously pursued the narrative and being on the cusp of the final mission that random street encounter feels completely different those two scenarios, despite the fact that it could happen on the same exact corner with the same exact NPC, with 12 hours worth of narrative in between the two, means that it, sh it shouldn't feel the same. Now, if we do our job poorly, it will feel the same, in which case we're not telling a story. We're just kind of like, you're just wandering around a sandbox and, and, and the stakes are never evolving. And I said, the problem is we're undermining the writing. We're undermining what the actors were trying to achieve. You know, everyone's working to tell a story here. So everything in the game was built around the idea of how do we build progression? How do we build progression? So like one example, and then I'll talk about the brass, was like the vocal solos. The vocal solos that you hear are specific to each district of the city, but they only unlock after you've unlocked a certain position within the narrative. So you'll go up on a rooftop and you'll hear this big lush thing with the orchestra or the chamber ensemble. And But if you've not unlocked what I deemed was relevant to what, the text she's singing is, which is actually taken from the Henry Purcell opera Dido and Aeneas. I would, I, I found text throughout that opera that comment that just beautifully commented on the, the story. And so you would do one of the missions, like you like going into the insane asylum and taking out the doctor who is, who is uh, experimenting on all of these uh, people kind of very a la Arkham asylum. And, uh, um, and, so there, you know, there's a soprano solo that is associated with commentary on that. If you haven't completed that mission, if you go to that queue, the soprano solo won't play. This is a very simple example. After you've done that mission, then if you go up on the rooftop, and it's not like the game waves a big red flag and points this out to you, but just the world starts to feel a little differently. Now suddenly there's a soprano singing this text um, about, um, you know, something that's indirectly about kind of madness. And so... To that end, I said combat 
needs to evolve in the open world. That we developed an entire system where um, it's it, the system is asking all these questions every time you get into a fight. It's asking how strong are you relative to the people that you are fighting? Is it one guy? Is it ten? And we develop a, a, an actual algorithm for a thing we call threat assessment that triggers one of several possible starting positions for the music, just in terms of basic drama. Like, is this a hard fight or not? And actually, another thing I said is there's always too much music in a game like this. So if it's an easy fight, no music at all. I just, we should not trigger the score. If it's a fight you're going to win in 10 seconds, my least favorite thing ever in a game is... Because it's, it's like... Because, you know, you trigger the start conditions and then you immediately trigger the stop conditions. And I'm like, music doesn't like that. That's a terrible, uh, that is a terrible excuse for music that um, is one bar long and actually says nothing because it's trailing behind the reality of the situation. So I said below a certain threat assessment shouldn't even be possible. Um, and... So that only fights that have some meat uh, to them are going to actually trade. And so, you know, if you've only gotten so far, there's a whole system of analyzing threat assessment. It's also asking questions like how long is the sustained uh, combat for? What is the probability that it's going to continue? How, what is your level? And who are you playing as? Are you Jacob or Evie? All of that goes to create a mix of the combat music that is very specific to that scenario. Once you reach a certain threshold in the narrative, we abandon all of that and start the whole thing over again. But now instead of a, a, a rigorously tiny chamber group of strings, it's now the full chamber group plus two flutes and two oboes. And it, that's when the waltzes really step forward a lot. And it becomes so much about the, you know. That suddenly uh, becomes the forefront with the winds and the strings. And then again, once you reach... The final threshold in the narrative, we kind of broke it into three big chunks, kind of like Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And once you reach that, we completely get rid of the winds and bring in the brass. And I'm paralleling this development in all the mission-specific music that only happens in the context of those missions. So, like, the you know, the eighth mission in the game is the, the guy... Um, uh, 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 I'm, I'm suddenly blanking on his name. Maxwell Roth, the kind of theater impresario psychopath who culminates his final – he ends up starting as your buddy and then he becomes a target because he just is kind of a crazy person. And it culminates in this big theater where he sets the whole theater on fire around you and you have to take him out and then get out of this burning building. And like the trumpets are the star of that sequence. But if you go and leave there and just go get a fight on the street, it's kind of like it brings the trumpets – with you, and so that's. I know that's again, once again, a very long answer, but the but but that was all so much by design, and and uh, and I would just really hoped that it actually came off. It's really nice to hear um, that it actually seemed to to translate because you know if you're just doing your own thing, the game just kind of knows what you're up to and just creates the experience. We've designed it to try to be as smart as possible, or as aware as possible of your personalized navigation through the through the world and and letting the music kind of ebb and flow with, with that so anyway there's there's a there's an extensive look under the hood at what was seemingly a simple question but it, we worked for like six months on figuring out how to make this work and to transition right and to always you know function and and um 
And it was not a, a hugely easy sell with Ubisoft to say, like, I'm going to write 30, 45 minutes of music that after you've played for four hours is gone forever and you'll never hear again. And then there's going to be a new chunk of like 45 minutes of music that is constantly being played around and remixed and, and, and turned upside down. And then again, never going to be here again, you know, because it just seems like it's such a law of diminishing returns. But I was like, guys, I'm going to be pretty dogmatic about this. Um, and uh, but they were the best. Lydia Andrews, the audio director on that project, and she was hands down the best audio director I've ever worked with. I mean, she was so on board with these ideas. I, I it, never did I get any remote uh, pushback. And in fact, I found out after the game shipped that there were internal people at Ubisoft that like level designers and art team people who were hearing the mock-ups and seeing them come online and they'd be playtesting the game. Like they would go check that their own asset had been implemented correctly. So they're just playing the, a build of the game in their office and they're hearing my mock-up and they're seeing how it's behaving. And they would like message, you know, the producer that's their boss and be like, this, this is weird and really different for, for AC and the producer. This only happened once or twice. Most of the team seemed to really, really love it. But every now Lydia would get a call from some producer that's like, are you sure about this? And she'd be like, go fuck yourself. This is my responsibility. And she was very protective of what we were doing. And I never found out about any of this until after the game shipped. But she was really like carving out a space for us to pr have our little private laboratory and um, – and was uh, it was just unbelievable. She was so supportive that even when people in the company had skepticism, uh, she I never even knew. She just built a wall around our process, which was that is so above and beyond. I I I, I you know because it would have you know it's like in her interest because she she has to keep working there after we ship the game, right? I I'm I go on to something, so it's in her interest to kind of play you know curry political favor internally. And she was like, nope, won't do it. Uh, that was crazy. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, question. Here she's asking Austin if there are any specific franchises he'd like to work on in the future that he hasn't already scored. It's, I don't have a good answer to that because I wouldn't necessarily have said Assassin's Creed is an answer to that prior to Syndicate because um, I, I'm not... If somebody carves out, like Jesper Kid, for example carved out a kind of specific musical language for Assassin's Creed. And if they had approached me and said, you know, he's busy, can you do basically this? I would have said, I'm good, thank you. Like, if, like either, either get him or, you know, I'm sure there's someone else who might be willing to, to do that. But I, I, I've been very lucky in my career that I've never really, that's never really been my, my thing. Um, and so... Because they said, we want to completely shake things up with the franchise and we want to totally abandon what has made AC AC and, and re-kind of invent the wheel. And they were trying to do that in as many areas of the game as they could, especially because, um, you know, with the way these productions are staggered, this project had, you know, had begun not terribly long after Black Flag, even though there's unity in between the two. And Black Flag was so eye-opening for them because it was like one of the best received and best performing of this franchise. And it was so different from from the first three and the various ex DLCs. Uh, and so they were – so as a result, um, they were – you know, they were very encouraging to, to not be beholden. In fact, they said explicitly, don't, don't give us recycled like Brian Tyler or Lauren Balfe or Jesper Kidd stuff. 
and which is great because I would have I would have just passed. Um, uh, so it was a it was a perfect match. So to that end, if some franchise were to show up, you know, if if, if uh, Irrational were to say we're making a new Bioshock, but we want nothing to do with what Gary did, what's your? How would you? What would you do with Bioshock? Then I would love it. But if they're like saying we love what Gary did, I would say, look, out of out of respect, both for the fact that he's my friend, um, and the fact that I'm not going to out Gary. Gary, like I don't understand the point of that premise. Um, I'm not interested. Thank you. For, and like, I, I, this kind of happened actually, uh, this is not a, a really known story, but several years ago, I got a call from EA, uh, or my agent got a call from EA that, that said specifically, you know, there's a very big star Wars title coming down the pipe, which of course turned out to be battlefront. And they said, we're looking for a composer. And, um, they asked if I would be interested in having my hat on the ring in the ring on it. And I said, is this going to be really loyal to like the John Williams aesthetic? And they were like, yes. So I said, no, thanks. And I, and I, and my agent was like, you're stupid. We have to at least put you in the ring for it. So I said, okay, send them the banner saga and then they'll never call back. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and that's, hopefully that doesn't sound like I'm making some kind of backhanded, um, um, denigration of what Gordy did on that game because I thought what he did, very few people have the ability to do. I don't know that I could have done that, even if I had, even if that had been appealing to me. I don't even know if I could done have done what he did uh, because it, 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 the, the, the raw talent n needed to hit that mark so exactly to execute that is is astonishing to me. And so while I don't envy the job itself i have the off the charts admiration for the results it's one of those where i'm like i'm thrilled i did not do that job because it turned out better for my not in being involved so you know as a kid though the idea of not wanting to fight to be involved in a star wars thing would have been completely i would have not known i would have been like you are not adult me um and so, so that, you know, so I don't know there, you know, there's a lot of great franchises out there and, uh, and, uh, and if, you know, one should come along, I've, I've had my hat, I can't really talk about them, but I've had my hat in the ring recently on a few that are similar to as AC well-established, um, and which I proposed a very left field turn for them and which they politely declined, um, and someday, when in, when there's enough distance, I'll reveal what those were, and I may even share the music that I wrote for it. Um, but uh, but so that would be you know so yeah I don't there's no fran there's franchises that I love like I love Bioshock, but uh, I would not want to change what makes Bioshock Bioshock, and that's and Gary's work is so core to that that it's like as a fan of the fr as a someone who plays those games rather devotedly. Um, I don't see how my diving in would do anything other than knock it off course unless they just really, uh, you know, another good example would be mass effect. Like I got a very, um, I got a very vague email from that team years ago for what I assume was Andromeda, um, asking me to send over like electronic kind of mass effecty stuff. And I said, well, look, I said, I've done a lot of electronic stuff, but it's pretty different from the aesthetic of that team. And, 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 and so, you know, I was like, I don't really expect you to bite on this. 
and uh, and then uh, they didn't, <laughs> and I didn't I didn't begrudge that because again, you know, like if they want to change things up dramatically, I'm right there because I've been too I've been slightly spoiled by the vast majority of projects I've worked on are new IPs, so I've never really had to contend with the idea of like navigating an existing franchise. AC is the only other time I've really done that other than AC was Leisure Suit Larry. Uh, and, uh, and, but that was again, one where they told me, take it and run with it. And I said, I want to use your theme. I love your theme. I want to use that theme, but otherwise I want to take it in its own weird place. And they said, great, go for it. Anyway. All right. I'm being ridiculous with these answers. So let's lightning round some more, some more answers. One, one, at least one more. Yeah. Oh, David. All lightning round. Uh, So I have a friend who actually was a soloist on, on porn. She played the operator. Name was Chris Gale. Chris Gale. Yeah. Um, hold, hold that. Hold that. Hold. Wait. Check it out. The actual ocarina she played those solos on. <laughs> it's on my. It's on my little. My little shelf of. Uh, of happiness uh, here. I like the dog bone. The dog bone is from when I did a recording session with thirty trombones that I called the Boneyard Symphony, and I got all of them. I got all of them to sign the giant dog. <laughs> anyway, uh, go ahead. Let's talk about Chris Gale. So, real quick question: How did, in, in one sense, um, how do you meet people who, you know, how do you come into contact with the people that are playing solos on their music, and uh, or did, or do they reach out to you, or do you find them randomly? How does that work? It's been one of two. It's been one of two ways, primarily. Um, a lot of these people like Kristen Nagus and, uh, Chris Gale are, you know, nerdy gamers like me who are putting covers for fun or for money on YouTube. And so Chris did an ocarina cover of, I was born for this. And I was like, holy shit, I, I, I want to work with you. Um, same with Taylor Davis, the violinist. She did this completely mind boggling journey cover with this music video shot out in the snow and, and with this incredible cosplay. And, and, uh, I was looking for something, I was, you know, figuring out the banner saga. And I said, what if banner saga is wind ensemble, but then there's the one violin and it's her. And so, um, so yeah, I, half of it has been people who covered my stuff in ways that's interesting and has personality and is nothing like the original. Like it, people that try to do covers that are super faithful, I'm always very touched by, but it's less inspiring to me than when somebody completely reinvents it. Like when Viking Jesus did a metal cover of, of journey on dueling electric guitars. Um, I was like, there's a guy I need in my life. Uh, like that's just a person I want to know. And like, talk to um and write and make music with and um and so half of it has been has been finding someone because they they did a thing and i was just the very lucky recipient of some of their efforts but then i thought that can't be the end of it i don't want to just like have you write or you know do stuff inspired by my work now let's make something new together um uh, and that's actually even more exciting um and then the other half is like this new project I kind of hinted at where, um, in the, in the case of that one, I, I, I will, I'll give you another hint. This woman is an accordion player and she has, she has got to be the best accordion player on the planet. She's the only person that I know of 
who has a full-blown classical career as a as an accordion soloist, like a like a literally like a Joshua Bell style. Career. She has an exclusive contract with Deutsche Grammophon and like the real deal classical accordion player from Latvia. And I found her because um, a friend of mine. Actually, the guy who's the creative director of this game that she's the soloist on, um, he and I are nerds who share musical things back and forth. And like, you know, hey, did you check this out? Did you check this out? And one day he sends me a video on YouTube and he goes, I've, he goes, I've always hated the account of it. I hate the way it looks when you play it, everything about it. But I feel completely reborn on my appreciation of it because look at this woman. And he sent me a video of this woman playing accordion with charisma and showmanship like Tina Guo, but also virtuosity on an unreal level. I, she was doing things I didn't know accordion could do, and I own an accordion and like kind of quasi-play it. And so I said to him, well, what about – what do you – what if – what if I made that the solo of this thing we're, we're doing? And he was like, really? So I just cold called her and, and I had to go through her management and negotiate with Deutsche Grammophon and do this incredible like hoop jumping. But was like, I just, I have to work with you. Um, and so that was someone where, you know, the, the developer found her and then we just like looked up all these performances and we're like, this, this woman's a force of nature. And uh, so I just said, I'm just going to make it work to record her. I flew to London for the sole purpose of recording her, um, uh, like alone accordion in, the, in at air. It was amazing. I was so I was so thrilled with how that played out. So anyway, it's it's half people who I find because they've covered my stuff, and it's half people who I find because they're just doing something off on their own that's crazy and amazing, and I just want to be part of it and drag them in. I know we only have one minute left, but we're going to ask another question anyway. Anybody have one yeah, more question okay. for Austin? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm a little mystified by pitches, uh, but, but as in like providing a pitch demo for a developer. Um, and so maybe a little earlier in your career, how did you handle sort of the risk reward of time and energy spent into a pitch that may or may not come to fruition? How did you, how did you handle that? I put everything on the line and 99% of the time it doesn't work out. Um, and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in the kind of, you know, the Wayne Gretzky thing. If you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take, I, uh, I am a believer that if, if 1% of the shots that you take land, then make the 1% a pool of like 10,000 shots. Because that's a lot of work if you get 1% of 10,000 stabs. And uh, so I have always put myself out there a ton um, knowing and, in fact, planning on not getting most. Because if I got all the jobs that I that I discussed or put my hat in the ring on or demoed for or whatever, it'd be more than, than, a, than I could possibly take on. I, the system is built around the idea that most of these aren't going to work out. And every now and again, that makes for a tricky situation when more of it ends up panning out. I find myself with a lot on my plate that is challenging. But so, the, but the, 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 the real heart of your question is I, I, I challenge the question of what actually is the risk of doing it? What is, what is the worst case? Ask yourself what the worst case scenario loss is there. Time, maybe money. Uh, but first off, from a time perspective, 
if writing music, whether for a demo or not, feels like it has any, there's any scenario in which that can constitute a waste of time, maybe reevaluate your career choice. Um, and because to me, writing music is writing music. I, that's what I wanted to do all day, every day with my life at age 10 or 11. And so I don't care if I'm being paid for it or not. If I have something to write because I needed to write a pitch for something or because I have a job or both, uh, that is what I want to be using my time with. So the time part is, is, is somewhat of a no brainer. And then the energy and actual potential cost and, 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 and that sort of thing, um, you know, you have to kind of navigate that for yourself, but I, I am, I am of the mind that like, like, so that 30 trombone thing I just mentioned, that was a demo for a job I didn't get. Um, I spent a fortune. I had just done a job where I actually had like a tiny bit of money in the bank and I spent all of it on this demo because it was, it was, it was a few years ago, the Lionsgate remake with Jason Momoa from, from like Game of Thrones. And now he's, um, now he's Aquaman in the DC universe movies. Um, he was the star of Lionsgate's like hundred million dollar reboot of Conan the Barbarian. Um, and totally bizarrely, um, I was, I was in conversation about potentially scoring and my agent at the time said, send me your biggest, baddest Conan music. And I was like, well, I have some stuff with like samples that's lame. So I went into the Warner Brothers scoring stage and I've got together a gigantic brass group and wrote the loudest, most nasty things that I could possibly imagine. And I pitched a very specific, aggressive approach to that score. And, um, and, uh, and then ended up not getting the job because the director was, he really wanted something like the 300. And so they basically just went and got Tyler Bates who, who did the 300. Um, and which was, which was totally fine. And as it turns out, that movie bombed so hard that, uh, and was so universally maligned that I have no, I've lost no sleep over having not scored that film. Um, but that was an example where I was like, here's the thing. If I don't get this job, I still have a recording of big, nasty brass music that I can put or pitch or just to play for people or whatever forever. So what is the actual negative here? In that case, it actually worked out the best possible way because I didn't get a job that could have been actually quite damaging to my career. And I got a fun recording session and very memorable experience out of it. So to me, pitches... There's never a good reason not to pitch. I mean, I can't begin to tell – someday, this year I've really gone overboard because there's a few things that I decided I was interested in that are way outside of my normal world. And I have to be that vague about it. But there's a few things that I became interested in. And I have, I have gone so off the deep end with some of these pitches this year um, just as an experiment. And someday I'll make it all known. Uh, the, but I'm a believer in that, you know, do what you can do what you can manage, but there's no reason not to, I would say, you know, and people that complain about it, I say, unfortunately you are complaining about reality and doing them unpaid. That's just the way it is. And you can either accept that and embrace it or not. And if you don't, that's perfectly your right, but you do so at professional peril, I think. Hopefully that was a Hopefully that was a good answer. Like, a, uh, hopefully that answer actually addressed the question. <laughs> I think so. I think so. 
Austin, you are a mensch. I love you. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for, for being here with us. Uh, it is absolutely my pleasure. I mean, it really uh, uh, is just a real, uh, a, a real privilege. Again, I'm sorry I'm not there in person, but maybe next year. Yeah, maybe so. But I'm lucky to have you. So, you know, I'm, 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 I guess I'm probably fine this way. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to episode 48 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Austin Wintry and the Gamers Rhapsody Con at patreon.com slash level. If you're interested in learning more about becoming a patron, you can visit us at that same site, patreon.com slash level. We'd love to have you on board. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about Sam and me at june-media.com. Remember, June is J-O-O-N.